You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Welcome to the third and final part of my talk with the legendary George Cave. This is a short discussion of some of the funny, spooky, and even strange experiences that a CIA officer has in the course of a long career. You know, while you were in in, uh, Beirut, George, you mentioned a number of of operations you'd been involved in, some of which were what we'd call today deception operations or covert action. And I know one of your, among your targets there was the local Communist Party and trying to, to the extent you could, disrupt their activities, their operations. And there was a story you told me that was particularly interesting because it involved the KGB's effort to try and influence or even control the party. The, um, it was very interesting. Uh, when the Sino-Soviet split first became apparent, um, it had an effect on, you know, local communist parties around the world. Now, in Beirut, the KGB resident started meeting with the Central Committee of the Lebanese Communist Party, trying to maintain the cohesion of the party. Now, there was a group of guys in the party who were very upset with the fact that they were being dictated to by the local KGB resident. So what we did is we started printing pamphlets uh, criticizing uh, this fact and indicating we, it, this, is, this was being done by this group. You were attributing them to that yeah, group. Yeah, that they were group. black propaganda. And yeah. um, they never said anything <laughs> saying it wasn't them. So we did a couple of these. And what, what happened in one time, we were doing a massive mailing. So we had this group uh, that was recruited by an Armenian asset of ours and we used they were used for support purposes and some surveillance so we told these guys to mail these so the one guy I don't know what wasn't very bright he goes to the post office and he takes one envelope out hands it in to the guy selling the stamps and the guy weighed it and so he could find out how much how much stamps to buy and uh, and uh, at what rate and so the guy got suspicious that was selling the stamps and we reported it and of course our asset was arrested 
So the case officer is really screwy. So the case officer meets with the principal agent of this Armenian group, and he tells him, well, we've got to terminate these guys. And so the Armenian has to terminate them. He said, our case officer says, yes, of course. He said, but wait, I'll meet you next week, and we'll decide how we're going to do it, and I'll let you know next week. So the following week, the asset shows up, and he looks like he's on death's door. And the case officer looks at him and said, what's the matter with you? Are you sick or something? No, the guy says, I just don't like the idea of having to kill all of these guys. And the case officer laughed and says, we're not going to kill him. In fact, we're going to give him a termination bonus. And the guy was very relieved. These things happen in operations. You know, at one point in talking about the denied area, what you call denied area operations in the Near East, you related a story in which you had occasion to go to the then chief of counterintelligence, James Angleton, of considerable infamy or fame, however you regard him. I wonder if you could just describe that incident when you had occasion to consult with him on people who had been identified as CIA assets. Yeah, this was in 1969. There was a large number of Iraqis who were executed, 109 as I recall. And all of them on television, or most of them, had claimed to be, you know, have been recruited by the CIA. And we didn't even have traces on most of these guys. Traces meaning any record of them at all. Any record of them at all. So I knew that at that time the Mossad was involved with Iran in doing cross-border operations into Iraq. And so the man who ran, who was really instrumental in our relationship with the Mossad, was James Jesus Angleton. So I went to see him and asked him if maybe this wasn't coming out of the Mossad running cross-border operations. And he just looked up at me and said, well, you're wrong, but I can't tell you why you're wrong. And after that, I never had any further meetings with Angleton. A classic encounter with James Angleton. You know, you mentioned in talking about the attempts to disrupt the Communist Party and similar kinds of deception efforts, which we considered sort of black operations, black propaganda, covert action. I know at one point you sort of had an impression of then-director Stanfield Turner's take on your and other people's involvement of those kinds of operations. Can you just describe that to us? Well, one of the operations I think he was possibly upset with is that in Beirut I was doing a lot of this kind of stuff, and people would send me stuff saying, can you use it? And so I got a cable once, and it was a list of 16 field-grade Egyptian army officers 
who were killed, had been killed in action during the, in, in supporting the rebels in the South. So after thinking for a bit, I proposed that what we do is we put out a press statement from uh, the Xinhua Press Agency, the Chinese Communist Press Agency. And what it was, was that um, what we would have in the press statement. This would be a purported, yeah, we would do it, but attributed to Xinhua. Attributed to Xinhua. Yes. And what we said was in the press statement was that 16, these 16, and we listed them, these 16 Egyptian army officers were imitating Jamal Abdul Nasser in that they had, because of their experiences in the Yemen, they had formed a committee and had sworn that when they returned to Egypt, they would work to overthrow the regime in Egypt. And that the Egyptians got word of this and the KGB was contacted for help. Could they take care of these guys? Because we didn't want to have to try and do it ourselves. It might leak and give them more credence. And the KGB agreed, and they managed to make it appear that these guys had been killed in action. Now, one of the reasons we picked Shin was that we knew that they had access to two newspapers in Beirut. And so we mailed these things from, from Damascus. And of course, on the two newspapers, it was on the front page. And man, the reaction of the Soviets was incredible. The Russian ambassador was demanding of the Egyptian ambassador that he publish a rebuttal. And uh, the Egyptian ambassador says, rebuttal of what? And he says, you know, that, that article that was in Muharraq. And he says, well, I don't know. It might have been true. <laughs> so, so finally, it was these calls going back and forth between them. And finally, the Egyptian ambassador said, well, look, why don't you send a cable to Cairo and ask your ambassador in Cairo to take it up with the Egyptian government there? Because I can't say anything because I, I look like a fool. What do I know about what's going on in the Yemen? So this went on for quite a while. And the Chinese didn't say a damn thing until about a month after afterwards they put out a press statement and said that uh, an article appeared in El Mohara. We wish to inform everyone that we had nothing to do with that article. And the article is as follows, and they printed the whole thing again. But, but I know when you related that story, you were telling me that Admiral Turner, then Director Turner of CIA, uh, did not look kindly on such operations, such covert action operations. No, he didn't. He, th he thought that people that would stoop that, I guess people that would stoop that low where there was something morally wrong with them. But it was very successful. But that resulted, I mean, what you're saying is that resulted in a number of our senior officers being let go. Yeah, then the, when I retired at the end of February, there were 26 uh, senior officers retired, and so, a lot of really sharp guys. And the deputy director, um, the guy with the Italian name, uh, 
he called me up and says, come up for lunch. And he said, we can't let all of you guys go. And uh, he showed me a memorandum. He was writing to the director saying that, look, you have the authority to permit these guys to retire, but you also have the right to deny them retirement, saying that they're needed. And, um, and the director said, no, uh, I'm going to let them all retire. But he called me in and said, you can retire on the condition you come back the day after you retire. <laughs> For the good of the service. Yeah. And that concludes my interview with George Cave, one of the real legends of CIA's clandestine service. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.